We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVergilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Scared money don't make money, you know? Welcome everyone back to the podcast. It's me, Alan Williams. I'm here with the James DiVergilio. Missing a little bit of his vocal power, but you know that pristine intellect is still right there. How you doing over there, buddy? I'm doing well. I've got uh, some Alan Williams made honey and lemon tea. I was gonna just drink straight honey, which to some of you might seem crazy, but that's been my secret on the podcast. After intense home games, if I lose my voice, I just I drink the honey bear right here as we're recording in studio. But Alan said, no, 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 let's up your game. So I have my huge national champion mug from 06 filled with goodness. I'm going to give you all that I have today. Um, I just woke up without a voice. So I wasn't yelling. I wasn't doing anything over the weekend to lose my voice. And I thought, oh, no. Uh, But Alan's got some traveling commitments and other things. And we just didn't want to go another week without bringing you the podcast. We know you've waited long enough. We appreciate your patience. We know a lot of other podcasts are putting out content seemingly twice a week through the doldrums of summer. We like to wait until things build up so there's enough to analyze rather than micromanage or micro-focus on whatever's out there. So, Alan, it's great to be back in studio with you. Obviously, a lot of stuff has happened, and nothing has happened all at the same time. Well, it's SEC Media Days, which is, as some people like to say, talking season, right? There's some fun stuff to talk about, but still, you know, not the stuff that we really enjoy, but there's enough here certainly for us to get into a lot of movement around college football in general. I think it'll be a really fun show, kind of taking a step back and looking at the bigger picture of things. Yeah, and as always, if you like this content, follow us on social media, sub to our YouTube channel, where we will soon begin to put out new film reviews as the season begins. And then become a patron on Patreon, where you can still drop us a dono if you haven't yet. If you've been listening for a long time, it's a great time to join us during the new season. And if you're one of the patrons that deletes your your uh, your dono during the off season, which is great, understandable, we're not producing a lot of content then, time to hop back on in August. And if you're one of our faithful supporters that continues throughout the entire year, thank you. We love you. We greatly appreciate it. We've had some new patrons in the past six weeks, Alan. Two level ups um, from Grambo, which is a great name, leveling up. 
And then Evan Davis leveling up, both leveling up to high levels, XL and then double XL. So thank you guys for being longtime supporters. We've had a lot of supporters now this year. We're going to read out, as we always do, Alan, every single person that's ever given us a dono during the season. And that number is getting higher and higher. And we are always very thankful and appreciative of all the support you give us. And if you don't contribute, we are very appreciative of the support you give by listening, sharing the show with your friends, and et cetera. It definitely keeps Alan and I going. And it is an honor to see you on social media requesting us to make content and produce a podcast. We we feel very special that you'd want to hear from us, and we are excited to bring you what we have today. But first, let's revisit who is sitting on the throne. It's been a while. And then, of course, read out our Dono Legends. So, yeah, Jason Walker, still the offseason king here. Let's see if that continues into the season here proper as we get into August and the dog days of summer here. Can he maintain it all the way through? We'll see. Uh, the rest of the Dono Legends, the big homie, Lil Payton, Constantine, Double O, Alexander Leventhal, Diego Rivera, Bill Hood, James Newton, Nathan Jeter, Stash Me, Bobby Boucher, Frank Marcellisi, Mike Wechter, Tim Kane, Nicholas Isaac, Mike, Mark Jackson, Tim Hondrick, James Truett, Gus O'Leary, Brad Wilson, Mark Mitchell, Chris Folsom, Dr. Matthew Galloway, Aaron Jeter, Jason Landry, Michael Reeves, Jason Johnson, Zach Sparks, Cooper and Kylie Craig, Mark Rubenstein, Tyler Rumery, and Craig Scarado. Okay, as I said... Last week was SEC Media Days. If you're not sure what that is, it's just basically all the coaches plus three players from each team go to like an event. Traditionally, it's in Hoover, Alabama, but they've started to move it around. This time it was in in Atlanta. And they get to, people get to ask questions. It's a big kind of, you know, rubbing elbows, kind of rubbing shoulders. What's the expression there? Either way, people are talking, hanging out. Uh, there's always storylines that come out of this thing. Sometimes they're silly. Sometimes not. Um, I think the bomb last year was dropped that Texas and Oklahoma were coming to the SEC, which obviously has continued to have major repercussions across college football. So you never know what you're going to get. Um, yeah, it's fun. The SEC is obviously the big one. The other, Every other conference has a media day. Some people talk about it for a minute, but everybody is focused on this one because it tends to be a circus. So any other just big takeaways from you from – Media is, I don't know how much, how closely you pay attention to everybody. I played, I paid pretty close attention. I have to tell you, if we didn't do the podcast, I'd probably just hit up the the highlights view. But since we do the podcast, we do our best to kind of take a look at what's going on. I think what you just said, though, is, is pretty key, Alan. If we were doing a podcast on probably any other conference, we would not have an episode based on media days. But that's just how good the SEC is when it comes to characters, storylines, intensity, drama. Um, it's worth covering this stuff. And it really, it delivered. I mean, every coach there came into it with very different scenarios and things they wanted to get across. And you had some very serious stuff with Brian Harson right. of Auburn, who in an opening statement addressed what he basically said were unfounded directed personal attacks against him and he's still here and he's not going anywhere and then you had several other ones will break down but of course my favorite my favorite is is twofold first it's it's Mike Leach which there's there's so much like ego and you know these coaches are, are little emperors of their programs and he gets his introduction which is like you know a nice introduction by his AD and rather than make an opening statement or be effusive about what he's building for, he just says, oh, that's really great. Thanks. 
what questions, you know, what questions do you have? Which totally. honestly is awesome. It's like, he's I'm here to do media sure. day. I'm not going to give you some song and dance. And then he's a guy who loves to talk. Uh, but I thought that was great. And I also thought, of course, Lane Kiffin as, as someone who really just continues to seemingly rebuild his image as like Mr. Entertaining SNL skit guy, while also being Mr. Truth Teller is one of the more incredible rebrands I've seen of our lifetime. Whether he's joking about signing golf balls and mustard bottles from a Tennessee game, or he's opining on the fact that what do you expect from the NIL other than a pay-for-play league where the the highest budgets get the best players, he's just very entertaining consistently at the mic. And then there were lots of other things going on from everyone in between, Alan. Uh, My last favorite would be that the media didn't ask Nick Saban a single question about the Jimbo Fisher drama. No. But the scared. very first question asked to Jimbo Fisher is, how do you feel about the Nick Saban thing and should you apologize? And if that does not show you the power of Nick Saban, I don't know what will. Uh, he just all, he just looked at them all in the eye and they just knew. Don't, don't do ask. It. Don't do it. And so I think in general there, there was a lot of stuff this year that was very, I mean, you could go through every coach. There were interesting things said and done. And we'll give you a few more highlights. But how about you? Did you have a favorite? You know, I I think I'm with you on Kiffin as much as it pains me to say because I had a strong distaste for him on like every level. But I love that he just says it unvarnished, right? I mean, he likes to joke around, but he just is really saying what we're all thinking. And I think that's endeared him to a lot of people. And the SEC is chock full of characters right now. It's a really fun time, I'm sure, to be covering the league writ large because... You know, you just already mentioned Leach and Kiffin. You have the Saban, Jimbo stuff. All the new coaches in the East. It's a lot of it's a lot of interesting stuff. Um, yeah, just before we get into a few quotes here, what was your opinion on Napier in general? Like, how do you feel like he did in this setting? I thought that Napier is who we know him to be. He's genuine. He's authentic. He's transparent. He's he's a he's a three dimensional person in a landscape where you have a lot of, you know, like we would say bravado. Uh, and obviously I just mentioned some guys in the SEC who are not like that as well, which I think is what makes the SEC particularly great. But for Billy, I think if you came away watching every coach's press conference at SEC media days and you wanted to have a best man at your wedding, I think Billy Napier is the selection that most people would have made despite the fact that we don't even really know him. Interesting. But that's I think, is the kind of appeal he had, sharing stories about his dad, his, his desire to be a football coach, how he treats everyone else. He's just that kind of guy, and he's not he's not a showman. He's authentic. He's not fake. A lot of guys will say this and family, and that, but he's, he's real, and I think that is something that really stands out in, in a game of football where so much is made for family, teamwork, sacrifice, selflessness. A lot of times the coaches say one thing and do another, but he certainly continues to be embodying this is who he is as a person. And I think that's what the other, you know, media members from other programs really took away from from Billy Napier was, hey, this guy's an authentic guy. He's the real deal. We'll see if he makes it or not. But he he's a guy that I would trust, I, I think, you know, to have a conversation with that mattered. Yeah, that's interesting because I was going to say something like measured, which sounds like he's withholding, but he's not withholding, right? He's just not... Yeah, like you said, not a showman. He's not going to create headlines. He's not going to be Lane Kiffin or Mike Leach or even you know somebody like Kirby or whatever. I think who is just a little more brash and 
a little more aggressive. He's, yeah, he has a very like thoughtful persona up there. He's telling me what he thinks. I wouldn't say he's boring though, uh, but he's not flashy. And so I think that works in college football. You don't often find that kind of combo of like humility and accomplishment. So, and we'll see how it goes when the pressure's really turned on. You know, Dan Mullen was never great in the press conference, but you saw both him and uh, McIlwain really deteriorate once the pressure started ratcheting up. Everybody is fine, you know, this first SEC media days before you've coached a game, right? There might be some, you know, people complaining here and there, but no one's really mad at you. Nothing's gone wrong yet. So we'll see in those postgame pressers how he holds up throughout the season. Yeah, and obviously, like, Dan Mullen would try to come in and sometimes make some jokes or do whatever Dan Mullen would do in those pressers before he even lost it in, obviously, the press conferences. And and McIlwain was always a risk to say something that I would have been slightly cringing at. But, again, Napier's, he's a a guy that you could say is buttoned up, but he also, he got emotional on the podium. You know, it's not not fake. He's not just doing that for, for kicks. So that's what I think strikes people is if you're a showman, anything you see like that, you think... It's not real. He's doing it because he wants to earn favor. But for him, it's real. And I think the real test is like what you said. What happens if you win? Because right now, if you're smart, let's say you're the most competitive guy in the SEC and you're a new coach, you don't want to come out putting a huge target on yourself. I'm going to win in this much time. I'm going to beat everyone. Because you don't necessarily control all of those narratives. But if you do start to become that person, then you can really craft your persona. What do you want to be like as a winner? And the flip side is also true. If you start to lose, who do you want to be known as, as someone who didn't win? And in the middle ground, it doesn't really matter what you're doing because no one's paying attention to you yet. And so I thought you said that well. When we hit the barbell side, winning or losing, and that's that's the end result of this, one of those or the other, we'll find out who Billy Napier really is. I think he's going to maintain who he is to this level. And I think you'd see a little bit more bravado if we win. I think you'll see a little bit more. A little more scared. A little bit, money yeah. Don't make scared money, yeah. money don't make money. It's never going to be in your face degrading other programs, but I think there's going to be a different level maybe of, of how words are delivered. Um, it's perceptible, but again, it's not. he's not going to become a Steve Spurrier uh, or, or some other guys who are going to really ride that sort of, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, brag and talk and, and denigrate my opponents kind of deal. Which is fun. You know, it has its moments, right? Uh Super fun. Let's be real. Most yeah. of us are Gator fans because of Steve Spurrier's influence right. on the program. Okay, a few quotes here. Let's start with one with Napier. This got some people's attention, the way he talked about maybe his chief rival here. And so when asked about Kirby, they've spent some time together on at least one staff team, maybe more. I can't remember their timelines. But this is nothing but respect for Kirby. I mean, the guy's an unbelievable football coach leader. He's a fantastic person, unbelievable competitor. Went on to say, I'll tell you, first time I saw him was at our first SEC meeting. I told him, I said, congratulations. I mean, that I know it goes into that, right? I'm proud of the guy, to be honest. He's done it, and he's done it the right way. It's going to be great to compete against him. Yeah, what to make of this, right? I, I think the the quote that never sits right with me is that he's done it the right way. <laughs> maybe he has. Maybe he hasn't. But it feels like maybe you just say, He's done it. It's going to be great to compete against him. That's more of the perfect quote. But everything else he said there, to me, if you're a fan of hockey, that's what's said 
every single series for the most part about the other coach and the other players. If you're a fan of a lot of other sports, this is generally what is said about the other coaches and the other players. If you're a fan of the NBA, this is crazy political nice talk. Because in the NBA, all we do is trash each other on social media. We trash each other in the media. We trash our coaches, our co-players. We just trash everyone. So depending on what your background is, this may or may not be something you're used to. But for me, I prefer this. I, I see no reason to get out there and start saying, oh, I can't stand Kirby Smarty coaches Georgia and I hate Georgia. It's like that. That's a lot of that's fake at the same point in time, right? And maybe as he competes against Kirby Smart, his feelings will change. When you compete against someone, things change. They start beating you. You get frustrated. But I think this is what you should say. Again, minus the he's done it right part because I think you could probably leave something like that out because maybe he hasn't done it right. Who knows? There's a lot of speculation that things have been done. Our first listener, Alan Williams, if he was on the show right now, you know, Tyler Rummery, our number one fan, so to speak, he would be hanging from the rafters saying how Kirby Smart wins because he cheats. I myself say, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that goes on there. I don't really know. Maybe I'm just going to take a neutral line. Either way, I have no problem with it. I think this is who Billy Napier is, and I think he means a lot of that. I think he does respect what Kirby has been able to accomplish at Georgia. So in classic Kirby smart mode, right? Uh, something we've talked about before. It's, it feels like it's a storyline every off season. He was open about his desire to move the Florida Georgia game out of Jacksonville onto campuses and his mind. So he can have another recruiting weekend. Now the guy turns out top three recruiting classes every year is it really that big of a limitation Kirby I don't know but he's maniacal about this right just like Nick Saban I'm sure Saban would be saying the same thing maybe that's what it takes to be the best there but I mean if this is the big thing it seems like with all the chaos around it is it really that big a deal to get an exemption at a neutral site game for hosting players right that both teams could do that or they could alternate years or something like that that doesn't seem if that is the reason we'd move it out of Jacksonville. And I've been on record saying I want to keep it there. I'm from Jacksonville. I know you've been in favor of maybe and some kind of alternating over four years kind of model. But if that's really the sticking point, I feel like that's not that big of a move to fix that. Yeah, I mean, he's 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 been against the game from the beginning. He doesn't like it. And, you know, I think a lot of Georgia fans enjoy that game for the same reasons Florida fans do. A lot of Georgia fans have started to come around to Kirby Smart's side. I've heard a lot more in the past two years about proximity to Gainesville. Blah, 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 blah. Exactly. But these these were not things that were mentioned, you know, 10, 12 years ago, nearly as frequently when this was just a fixture and people loved it. And uh, perhaps it's because they removed, you know, the world's largest outdoor cocktail party from it. There's less drinking going on and there's more complaining. But, but yeah, it's really interesting that Kirby's so outspoken about this rather than taking a softer approach and saying, hey, I think it'd be great if Florida could come visit our campus and we visit their campus and we also do Jacksonville. That seems like a middle ground, but he's pretty much just, I don't want to play in Jacksonville anymore. Taking away what is, most people I think would say is the best neutral site matchup each year. Uh, and something everyone looks forward to. And it just seems kind of out of touch with even where his own fan base is. I think most of his fan base would not vote to entirely get get rid of the Florida-Georgia game in Jacksonville. Well, you can see by the way that Jacksonville views it that they just keep upping the money. Right? And that doesn't, Kirby doesn't care about it. He's not negotiating. He doesn't care. Uh, and CBS, who locks this game in 
it's the only game on the schedule at the time already. 3.30. Right? That this is ratings gold. It's iconic. Everybody watches it. So I think all the invested people other than Kirby Spartan and his recruiting machine want to keep this here. So, I mean, he's riding high right now. He can say whatever he wants. He just won a national title. Just got a $112 million contract extension. If not now, he's probably peak power. If he wants to get something done, I'm sure he wants to say it right now. Yeah, $112 million contract extension, by the way. Which, you know, I guess if Mel Tucker and James Franklin are making that much, he probably feels like he should make more. But also, as someone else pointed out, where else is he going to go? Nowhere, but look, market value is you have to get paid what you're worth, right? That's Yeah, but is he really going to leave? No, but it's not about that. Well, that hasn't been about that in, in sports for a long time. Well, that's why Mel Tucker got that deal, because they wanted to keep him out of LSU. Right. I mean, that's the leverage that coaches use. But he's, where's he going to go? Nowhere. But well, this is this goes back to the same problem we talk about. It's like in a free market... Right, you you could continue to have innovation. You could have new leagues, super leagues. You could have reasons where he would go somewhere, but in college football, you don't have that. And then on top of that, you don't have any restrictions either. So again, sporting leagues like we've talked about have created salary caps, luxury taxes, etc. So then, in theory, if you want to pay people money, that's going to affect your organization down the line. So you decide how much do I want to pay this coach because maybe that's going to affect how much I have from my owner to put into a facilities upgrade. But when you have boosters, it's unlimited. Do whatever you want. I mean, so if I Kirby guess. tells a few prominent boosters, listen, man, I need more money. I need to get paid what I'm worth. I might go somewhere. I might listen to offers. Who knows? But I agree. To your point with leverage, he's where he wants to be forever. Is he going to be frustrated getting less? But really, doesn't matter. I'm going to keep saying this. doesn't matter because at the end of the day, there's a lot of people sitting in rooms, boards, ADs, etc. Presidents of universities, they're looking at budgets. I'm on several boards of the same thing. And they're not going to pay your coach too much money if you can't justify the ROI. It's not going to happen. So they're looking at that and they're saying, yeah, this still makes sense for us. Sure, He's I, still bringing in revenue. So we'll pay him. Who cares? That's a win. And that part, I understand you want your coach to be happy. And you I want think him to be happy. That's the part that I think always matters is when you look at this, they're not doing it if it was going to wind up being a bad business decision. It makes sense for them to pay a coach who's one of the hottest coaches in the market, who's able to beat Nick Saban, whatever he wants. And they're also, let's let's listen, Georgia, has, they're in the limelight. They've waited 50 years for sure. this moment. That was a good time for him, for these other coaches to get paid, because he was he was going to get paid. But I w- if I was those other schools, it's like, I'm not paying you that much money guaranteed. I'll find somebody else. But anyway, maybe that's why I'm not an athletic director. Or maybe I should be. All right, another quote here. Clark Lee, the Vanderbilt coach. We should have the direct quote here, but it's something along the lines of, yeah, when Vandy will be the best in the country. Not if or, hey, we like to be the best in the state. We're going to be the best in the country. Yeah, pretty much like a we all know that Vanderbilt's going to become the best team in the country. (laughs) What are your thoughts on this, Alan? You go first. (laughs) I mean, I didn't. I should have gone back and listened to him say it. But everyone's reporting like there's no tongue in cheek. There's no tongue in cheek. Right. He said it. I watched him say it. He said it just like that. Dead serious. So when you say something that stupid, either people think it's just false bravado or maybe you believe it and you're a little, you have a screw loose. Now, I think you would say like maybe we we aspire to compete with everybody or something that is like maybe not reasonable, but at least hopeful or attainable. 
I mean, I can't imagine a world that Vanderbilt is the best team in college football. If that happens, let's all stop. Let's remove Clark Lee from being the coach of Vanderbilt, make him the president, whatever he, whatever he wants, because this will be the the most significant accomplishment in sports history. I don't think that's I don't think that's hyperbole. No, it's not. And here again is the thing. So on on one respect, what stops us from saying Elon Musk said a long time ago he was going to do all these things to revolutionize electric vehicles or space. And people are like, that's awesome. That's aspirational. But Clark Lee at Vandy says this and we're like, this is out of touch and foolish. <laughs> well, there is a big difference there. All right. It's a big difference. He cannot innovate Vanderbilt into a top level in sports because this is a closed innovation environment. He can't create new football players that can do things better than Alabama's football players with some sort of innovation, right? He has a limited pool of human resources to pull from. Vanderbilt has, I'm going to repeat, no chance, no chance to collect that kind of talent. They don't have the resources or the budget or the draw, and they never will. They're a minor league baseball team playing in the major leagues. So when your coach gets up there and says that, yeah, he sounds confident until he sounds like an idiot. And look, a lot of generals in a lot of wars throughout history have made this same mistake. And they've acted like they're a big national power. But if you're Vanderbilt and you want to win a war, you got to fight a guerrilla war. And part of a guerrilla war is, hey, you know what? We can't beat this huge country straight up. But we're going to do all we can to get some wins, to win some battles. We're going to fight hard. We're going to try. You know what? We won zero games last year in the SEC. We're going to try to win one. And then we're going to try to win two. And then hopefully three and four. But it's a matter of fact, they say that we're going to become the best team in the country is like you said, if that's the case, then give him whatever job that has limited resources, like a presidential job that we possibly can immediately because he's the greatest limited resource manager of all time. Um, and again, you know, I think it's really important as a leader to be able to assess where you are, where you're going and what realistic goals are. So what I'm going to say lastly is an in investing Allen, the major pitfall of professional and amateur investors is having unrealistic expectations. And if you have unrealistic expectations of what your investment strategy is going to do, you tend to abandon it when it doesn't do what you think it's going to do. So in this case, Vanderbilt's going to lose games, of course. And you tend to have extra stress. You tend to make really bad decisions. So to your point, if he really believes this, when things start to trend not in that direction because of his unrealistic expectations, he will start to make worse decisions because he truly believes he should be taking them there. And that is not what you want to have. So, you know, Vanderbilt, maybe he just wanted to give us something on SEC media days and he's playing a joke on all of us, in which case, good for him. He did because yeah, no nobody say, would have talked about Vandy. Counterpoint, we would probably talk for three hours before we would have ever mentioned Vanderbilt. Not at all. And we just said something here at the top of the show. We did. So, so maybe he'd, maybe he's brilliant. Great game theorist. Could be. There you go. All right, we already mentioned Kevin talking about signing mustard balls and golf balls. Which mustard is balls great. And golf balls, which know. is just worth mentioning twice because that's great. It's also why I love Tennessee. I'm going to keep saying it. Tennessee fans love football. And Kevin knows it. He's leaning into it. It's glorious. They're riding high, too. I love it. Okay, uh, get into some predictions here from the media. So before we get to the rankings, let's talk about kind of where Bama's at. Just through the lens of players on the first, second, and there's a third team, but 19 players on the first and second team, 10 first teamers. 
So UF had one. One on their first and second team. One, and he wasn't a player until Billy Napier brought him here. Right. One. Uh, Yes, and that just shows you where UF is at, but maybe also where Bama. That's that's unbelievable. UF did add a few more. Brent Cox on the second team. Ventrell Miller, Trey Dean, and Gervon. Gervon, Dexter. We got corrected on this. Gervon. Gervon. Very nice. There you go. On the third team. So, so we three yeah. three teams deep. We have exactly five players. They have nineteen on the first and second team. Ten on the first team. That's yeah. I'm sure they had some third teamers too. You didn't even oh, of course, that. It didn't even matter. That's outrageous. Anybody off this list that you think should have been on there? You know, it's it's well. I mean, Anthony Richardson, I right. think, is being criminally slept upon. But I understand why because he got very little playing time. And look, we talked about this last year. Dan Mullen's handling of Richardson was almost an intentional campaign to ruin his like national prominence. And we talked about the dark, the dark side, right? And kind of what could have right. happened and what maybe really happened. But the reality was it, it worked. It worked. Like Richardson went from a national sensation the first couple games of the season to like a guy now that is like fifth or sixth or eighth on some people's quarterback lists in the SEC. <laughs> All because of of what? The Georgia game where he got thrown to the Wolves, where he was held out forever, where he had went up against the best defense ever. And we broke down that film ad nauseum. It still exists out there. Where I think a lot of what he was trying to do against them with limited resources was excellent and caused bad breaks. So that's one that sticks out. But you know, when it comes to these individual players list, it's basically about what you did last year and if you have brand recognition right. uh, slash stars if you're new. And Florida doesn't have that stuff. So not surprising. No, no, I'm not surprised on any of this. I mean, if you had had maybe a holdover offensive skill player or somebody, I mean, nobody, we had one of the worst defenses last year. So to have three guys, even on the third, four, I guess four guys on the second and third team shows you at least there's a little bit of thought that they're going to rebound. Now, these are all veteran guys. In the case of Miller and Dean, they're very old. So that's part of that name Ancient. recognition. Yeah. <laughs> They've been around. I see these guys' names. Yeah. Yeah. And Richardson, you know, well, here's the divide, right? He's going to be like eighth or ninth, maybe on an SEC QB board coming this season. Uh, on some more notable draft boards, he's like maybe QB five. So that's that shows you the split there. That and that's pure, obviously, just speculation, one way or the other. Right? Well, that's scouting versus media, right? Which also is a big difference. Most media members, no offense to media members, we have a lot of them that listen to this show. Most media members do not have any idea how to evaluate individual football player talent. They're good at writing storylines. They're good at following the team. They're good at asking tough questions. But when it comes to looking at a quarterback and deciding whether or not this person has a high ceiling, that tends not to be their expertise. Most of them have no yeah. background in that. And so, again, that's not a knock on the media. It's good to look at why do you see such differences oftentimes between the media's player rankings and then the NFL's future developmental rankings. They are looking at very different things. And Richardson, to the media, has fallen victim to what happened in that Georgia game. And now, you know, you get a bunch of other guys flying up ahead of him. And so it's a mixed bag. No one knows where he's going to be. Um, we're going to talk, obviously, at length before the season starts where we think he's going to be. But as it stands right now, he's quite under the radar, even in his own conference. And if he was, I mean, he was a a good recruit, but he wasn't like a top 50 recruit. Also true. So Four-star guy, but not a top Yeah, 50 if he guy. had been a five-star guy, I think the hype on him would have been unbelievable coming into this year. And, you know, and again, it's we're working from a small 
sample size. So everyone could be way wrong one way or the other, right? About him. He could be terrible. He could be great. We'll see. He no. can't be terrible. Oh, he... <laughs> the data is out there, Alan. I've put it out there. I I'm with you on this, but if he avoids injuries. I think that's the, that's my major concern I have for him. Not anything he's going to do on the field, but if he can't stay healthy, he right. can't be productive. Exactly. And, or he picks up a drug habit or anything. Oh else man, like. let's hope that doesn't happen. Right. So <laughs> but you just never know because they're people and they Correct. we talk about this all the time. That's what's hard about college football. Even yeah. in the NFL, this happens, right? Guys wash out of the league that are prodigious talents. Antonio Bryant, we're looking at you yeah. <laughs> because anything can happen to them. Yeah. But on paper, skill set wise, that's why you're seeing him flashing high in the NFL just by playing a handful of games, already flying up boards. He has every tool you could ever need. He's a missile for an arm. And look, I've said it once, I'll say it 10 more times. He can read defenses. It's on film. I've put it out there. If he puts that on display like I think he's going to this year, you should see a very rapid ascent of Richardson on everyone's boards. His ceiling, in my opinion, is higher than any other quarterbacks in college football right now that's a projected starter. His ceiling. We're going to find out if he hit the ceiling, but that's how high his ceiling is. Wow. And, I mean, I think it made the rounds there, his throw at the Manning camp. Just, I mean, he said he put a little extra on it, but... Stupid. Rather easily looks like he throws it 73 yards. He took a three-step drop and just threw it 73 yards to the end zone like it was nothing. That was impressive. That guy's a freak. Okay, the other predictions... Maybe I'm more interested in these. The player ones, whatever, people don't know. There's too many wildly different circumstances. But in the East, no surprise, Georgia at the top. I'm going to read this in order here. Kentucky, Tennessee, Florida at four. South Carolina, Missouri, Vanderbilt. Kentucky picking up four first-place votes. Tennessee, one. South Carolina, three. And then somebody obviously turned in a joke ballot with Vanderbilt at one. Maybe it's Clark Lee's son or something. I don't know. But... Does that seem right to you? Uh, Florida at four? How do you feel about that? Well, first, let's say that Florida and Missouri are the only teams not getting a potential first place vote. That's true. South Carolina has three, which is, that's pretty ambitious. Does it feel right? That's the question. No, it doesn't feel right because here's why. You're going to take... A, co- a coach in Kentucky with Stoops whose best finish ever in anything is second last year. Moving up the ladder some. Team is going to be solid, not spectacular. You take a Tennessee team who I love offensively. I mean, I raved about it before we played him when people were like not on the hype. Trans. Like, listen, this guy's offense is awesome. It's I love it. Yeah, I'm biased because it's pretty much what I run in my flag football team. But it's awesome and it wreaked havoc on the SEC. So much so that I think that, you know, Hooker, their quarterback, is getting way too much love. I mean, so many of those throws are just, that's why it's a good offense, are automatic go balls. No offense to him. um, But there's not a. He got in there and ran it. He did it, and it's great. But I mean, there's not a lot of reading going on. That's why it's awesome. It's one read, it's an awesome offense. I'm all about it. But. A lot of question marks on that football team, and I like them. Then you come to Florida, a lot of question marks on this football team. So to me, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Florida are all coin flips. It's interesting that I think most of the SEC media wouldn't view it as coin flips. I think that's what I'm going with this. I think they feel pretty strongly that Kentucky is the second best team. And then Tennessee and Florida are probably toss-up, but they're going to give a lean to Tennessee because of Hooker, which again is an uninformed opinion. 
Then there's Florida. So to me, you could shuffle any one of those teams, and I think I'd be fine with that. I think Florida, here's where I'm going with this. I think Florida has the upside, obviously, to solidify themselves as the number two. Roster-wise, they're more talented than Kentucky still yeah. on paper. And Tennessee. And Tennessee. They also have, in my opinion, despite all the love that Will Levis is getting at Kentucky and Hooker's getting at Tennessee, they have a more dynamic quarterback. They also have, I think, what's going to become a very quarterback-friendly game plan with Billy Napier, especially for a younger guy. He's not going to have to get out there and run an empty set five wide and read three reads deep like Trask could do. It's very simple. And with his tools, that's very dangerous in college football. Florida also has, theoretically on paper, a defense that should be much improved this year with a coordinator who's gotten a lot out of previous defenses. So, again, I'm fine with it because a lot of things are possible here behind Georgia. But I do think that Florida is being very slept on by the SEC media members because if we could really push this down, my gut is that they're not viewing this as coin flippy as we're viewing this. And I'm not trying to say as a Florida fan, I think just objectively the data would tell you these are pretty coin flippy results here, but they seem to be pretty solidified that, you know, Florida's falling behind those two and that's kind of how it's going to go. I think I go back and forth all the time about my, how I feel about this Florida season. It does have a lot of different out potential outcomes. It can go in a lot of different, there's a lot of room for variation here. Especially when you, if you start to factor in like an Anthony Richardson injury, that's then then we're slide us down, right? Keep sliding down. So I would love to see the raw data on this. Was it some people feeling really strongly about Florida, and some people putting Florida in like the sixth spot? You know, was there a lot of variation, or was it was it pretty much consensus? Okay, Florida's about three or four in there. Um, yeah, you know, I Florida. This is where we're at. We're not <clears throat> at the point where you just slam dunk pick us. Two, right, where there's a clearly best Georgia team, most talented team, and then Florida's got to be at least, if I'm hedging my bets, number two. There's a lot of respect for Kentucky right now. They're coming off one of their best seasons of all time. I'm I'm not buying the stock at that level, though. I'll say that. I'd be selling it at two. Now, if they came in and put Kentucky at four, I might be buying some Kentucky stock. But at that price, I'm going to sell it. Yeah, that's their ceiling. They're, they can't possibly go any higher than that. And that ceiling is, I think, very hard to hit for the reasons we just mentioned. It's too coin flippy. So, yeah, stock-wise, definitely. Give me the percentage chance that Georgia is not finished in first. Um, I mean, the first thought was zero. I'll go 1% because it's sports. But zero, I think. They're just so much better than everyone else talent-wise. And if they can win with Stetson Bennett... I mean, come on. I know everyone loves to give him this nice little story. Yeah. This dude is a is an average guy playing quarterback. If he goes down, maybe they can't be as consistent. Even then, I don't think he's all that consistent. So I, I just, I don't know, Alan. 1%. That's probably too low for you. I can tell by looking yeah, at his yeah, just Because it's college no, football. And well, there's the, a, lot of, a lot of new guys on the roster. They have a whole new defense. I understand. But they have so much more talent. They do. I would say coming off a championship, disease of me, a lot of new guys who walk in expecting to win championships, right? I 
I would bump it up as high as 9%. Wow. That is really high. Because try to imagine anyone else playing in the SEC championship game this year. It seems insane. Kentucky versus Alabama? Well, I could see I could see Florida doing it. Okay. I could see... Okay. Well, so here's the scenario, right? If it's not Georgia, I think it would be Florida. Okay. Because? Just the talent that actually... Because Georgia could... Could they lose two games is what I'm asking, right? Right. And I think Florida has to lose. also win. <laughs> they could win all, whole but, lot of games. all but one. Right. Florida's capable of that. I don't think any of these other teams are capable of that. Yeah, that's that's what I was saying. That's why the percent is interesting because, like, can you really imagine a Kentucky or Tennessee team with their current flaws being that consistent with the schedules they have? I mean, I don't know. No. But they still might shake out in those two spots. It just might be... And okay. again, I wouldn't put much stock in Florida winning the East, but yeah. but nine percent you're, you're you're able to take anyone else. The bet was Georgia or anyone else, right? Okay, I don't hate it. I mean, again, there's so much variability in college, so much. So I'll go one percent, you go nine percent, but there's a chance. Well, we're they've lost their. I, I mean, I think there's a big. They've had to have lost a little bit of their edge, right? Maybe, but there's like a lot of new players. These guys didn't play. That's the beauty of Bama. Bama doesn't lose their edge. Partly Nick Saban, also because the guys that were behind them weren't playing. So if you've been on a, if you've been on any kind of high level sports team, when you don't play and your team wins, I don't care what anyone says, you don't feel like you won. You don't. You say all the right things. This is great. I'm a champion. You're not a champion. Do anything. So now it's your chance to play. So generally, those guys have fire. And Nick Saban talks about it. I think the worst case scenario, and Saban had a team like this several years ago that he was not he was not high on. If you have enough guys return that did win, then you get in trouble. But Georgia turned over like a significant portion of this team. I think these guys are all hungry. They don't want to prove themselves. Okay. We'll see. Lock it in, folks, because put your futures bets there. Lock that in for sure. Okay, out west, Bama, TAMU, Arkansas, Ole Miss, LSU, Mississippi State, Auburn. What a great division of college football. I, <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. That is amazing. It's really crazy. It's amazing. What a dream to be an SEC West fan. Auburn, who feels like they should be definitely the seventh place team. I mean, they were an inch away from beating Bama last year and being like a seven win team. I know obviously some stuff has happened since then, but. That's crazy. Mississippi State is a really good team. Yeah. Like, where would you... This is, this is what I wanted to ask you. Where mm. would you put Mississippi State and or Auburn on the east side? Auburn I, Auburn, I think I would still put about... So if it moves it up to eight teams, I'd probably put them by six or so. So you'd put them ahead maybe, of Missouri or behind Missouri? Maybe one spot ahead of Missouri. But okay. right, right so behind there. South Carolina. Yeah. Okay. Just because I think there's going to... The wheels are most likely going to come off. Yeah, I was going to say that that's not a belief of talent. That's no. a belief the program's teetering on the edge. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. And then how about Mississippi State? I'd probably put Mississippi State. Ooh. Fifth, maybe, or fourth. Okay. I, I don't know. It depends on how. My personal one, I maybe would have Florida a little higher. Yeah, sure. That's fine. You're so to do that. around fourth or fifth. Okay. Which again, yeah. So they're going to, regardless, those are the two bottom teams and they're going to be. Yeah. You could make a case they yeah. could be like third. You could. I was going to say that's the reality. Is you could you could certainly justify that, and that wouldn't be crazy. Whereas if you were to say you're going to put Tennessee at third in the West, you've lost your mind. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and I think it's that 
squishy middle there of Arkansas, Ole Miss, LSU. It's very squishy. Yeah, and we by squishy, I mean not like soft, like easy, but like no. you could flip the order of that. All really of them, easy. and it's yeah. going to happen like that. You have no idea who's going to finish in that spot. But those are those are solid football teams for sure. I mean, so good. I every, love it. every game is going to be great, and the fact that Bama has 177 first place votes with that kind of division yes. is just what kind of juggernaut they're going to be this year. I mean, they bring back almost everybody, and it seemed like they upgraded at every spot. I mean, they're going to lose some at wide receiver, but they brought some guys in. I think they'll still be there, but almost no question marks on the entire team. It's outrageous. I mean, and again, they should have won. They would have won last year had they not taken the receiver injuries they did. I firmly believe that. Oh, yeah, for sure. And this year they are significantly better. If Williamson and Mechie are playing in that game, they win that game. They win the game. And so now it's like they're they're significantly better by many people's observations, and they should have won last year against an all-time good Georgia defense. Man, like I said last year, I really wanted Kirby to wear it for playing Stetson Bennett. And I have no idea. I mean, J.C. Daniels over at West Virginia. Who knows whatever he'll do. But, man, that would have been fun. It would have been. But, yeah, Bama this year. Um Cool. This is why sports are great, though. It, it's why they're great. You want to say it's over. There's no chance they don't win. And that's the you know computer algorithm bet. But you never know. I mean, I would say every team on that list could beat them. That's the thing. Is it On paper, it's like this team's insane. But week in and week out. That's hard. Home and away environments in college football. Full stadiums. I mean, I actually, I would if I had to bet something, I would definitely bet a loss for them in the regular season, just because that is such a large number of people who could beat you if you don't play well. This is not like okay, we have to play like one time a year to win. This is not Florida State and the ACC back in the day, right? Big difference there, yeah. Every every week is tough. Yeah, you you have some turnover, misfortune, injuries at a weird time. The other team is going to bite you. So we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. All right. Let's talk about recruiting NIL. I feel like when we're thinking about the headlines from the last month-ish, the last two months, what was going on with the Gator program, mostly it was people 
hitting the panic button about recruiting. That in the middle of all of the Jaden Rashada, if you don't know who that is, the quarterback who ultimately picked Miami, missing out on some guys, the recruiting not going as fast as people wanted, a lot of message board panic, a lot of panic amongst some of the people we know. What about you? Were you panicking? I am I am not panicking and was not panicking, but uh, I tend to to manage our social media here at the podcast. <laughs> and so I don't have a Twitter otherwise. I wouldn't even know what's happening with individual players. We talk about this a lot, Alan. And the reason I don't want to know is because it just makes me mad. I don't want to see what these high schoolers are doing or saying or posting. But thanks to all of you who are in tune with the program and you love Gator football, I got to see that because I'm getting sent all the tweets. And, you know, you're seeing one day a guy's post in front of a Lamborghini and he's doing that at five other schools and money talk and this and that. And I mean, all of it is, is not things that I look at and think this is great for anyone. But then you couple that with the fact that, hey, this guy's a lean for us, especially in the case of Rashad, and then he goes to Miami. And Miami, if you've been under a rock, is killing it in recruiting. Uh, and it. so it does raise some real questions, though, with Florida. A, let's start here. We mentioned where there's smoke, there is fire. There will be fire. Florida has been in way more top four lists, and I mean way more. If one of you wants to go figure this out, this would be an awesome data point to know compared to the previous regimes of Dan Mullen and McIlwain and even Muschamp. I mean, it's unreal how many top players have us on that list. Now, we have not landed as many as I or anyone else would have wanted. That's step one. Step two, the question then becomes, why? So, Alan, you've been asking this question since we first started talking about early signing day and then the NIL. What do we do with the three-year test? We're going to cover this more extensively than we will right now, but we got the most questions surrounded it on this one because, of course, you listen to our show. You know we use the tiers. You know we look at it macro. You know we use the three-year test. This is despite the fact that Billy hasn't coached a game yet, his second recruiting class. His first recruiting class was eight days or something, right? I mean, that's what it was, but this is the reality of college football. So was Crystal Balls at Miami. He's killing it this year. So every single national championship winning coach has a phenomenal bump year their second year, which is what's happening right now with Florida. Right now we're ranked 23rd. We have just 12 commits. We have a, a rating of 90.57, which puts us where Dan Mullen's classes would sort of finish, but a lot of those classes would lose players, and we'd probably finish more like at 88 or 89 if we look at that number. We're going to cover the tiers, but not right now. We'll save that for later. We're trending ahead of Dan Mullen's programs, but essentially, if you just opened your eyes and you looked at that number, you would think that looks pretty much like what Dan Mullen would have done, despite the fact that we're being mentioned by way more top players. So, why is this happening? Back to that question, Alan. It seems impossible to escape the reality that pay-for-play under the NIL is a real thing. There's way too much talk about it, and it certainly seems like Miami is leading the way along with A&M last year, but really this year in the new, true, full NIL environment is leading the way on contractual pay-for-play before a player even goes to Miami. Now, in case you don't know this, under the current rules, you are not allowed to guarantee a player any NIL money whatsoever. You can't even work on NIL deals until they get 
into your campus. That's what Nick Saban was complaining about with AM. That's lost on the average fan because the average fan is going to say, everyone's doing it. Why not? Well, Florida's not doing it. That could be hurting us. Miami's definitely doing it. Significantly so. That's why they're signing all these guys. So where does that leave Florida? Where does that leave your question, Alan? What do we do with the three-year test in year two? Year two is not over yet. We still have to let this recruiting class finish out. But my own admission would be you have to get in the top five or what we're going to call tier one or tier one and a half of recruiting to win a national title. And Florida right now has work to do to get there. This would be an anomaly if we finished, let's say, 15th and in a tier two and a half, tier three class in year two for a coach to then get to the top five. It almost never happens. So all that being said, before I give my answer, I want to know what you think because you've been talking about this from the beginning. What are your thoughts on the answer to your own question? How much is this recruiting class being affected by NIL money, Florida's stance on not being willing to contractually agree to terms with players before they come here on guaranteed money, etc.? Where does that leave a coach like Billy Napier? How much of this is on him versus how much of this is on the current and new scenario facing college football? Right. It's impossible to say for sure, but I would say greatly. I think Florida, with this staff and with their focus, can win a lot of recruiting battles. But if this is like baseball and you're the Oakland A's and you have like, you know, a $50 million budget and the Yankees have a $237 million budget. There's just going to be a lot of guys you get priced out of, and there's nothing you can do about it. You can be the greatest re- recruiter in the world, and it's like, hey, we're going to give you 100000 The next guy says, I'll give you $1.1 It's like, cool, I love you, Billy, but peace, right? So I think we're going to have to give this some time, right? I think you'll still be able to see who's a good coach on the field, who's doing a good job in recruiting, right? So you get down to like the 300 best player. The money's roughly the same. He's going to pick where he should go, but these top guys are going to get major, major money. And it remains to be seen whether these schools can do it year after year, right? A&M right now, their recruiting class is not very high. It doesn't mean it's going to stay there. I bet they improve greatly. Yeah, by not very high, they're like 62nd or 3rd. And we'll see what the market bears this. You you like lay out $30 million and then half the guys are out by the next year and they're not very good and they're not playing like they're supposed to. And it's like, do I want to do that every year? Maybe not, right? Do we start to get these conflicts between coach and collectives? This is the murkiest situation in my lifetime in college football. So it feels like Billy Napier, if we had hired him, if he had been at this point five years ago, Florida would have, I would almost said, I would be very surprised if we're not in the top five. Right now, I I don't know that I can have any expectation about any program at all over the next five years. I think... Once this all gets settled out five to 10 years from now for college football, then we'll almost have a new rubric. I Honestly, I can't really even say like anything about what I would expect from Billy Napier recruiting-wise. Now, on the field, that's a whole different thing, right? How, how What kind of players do you have? How are you developing them? Are you winning games? Are you maximizing talent? All that stuff. But I don't think I can fault a guy right now for – Losing out on players. And again, this is all shadowy talk. We don't know. But yeah, it's just, I. and again, I wouldn't spend that kind of money on high school players. You have no idea. You have no idea how they're going to work out. So 
I would say almost like you have to put some kind of like caveat on the three-year test in terms of recruiting at least, right? Again, we're going to see what happens on the field, but there you go. Yeah, I think you said the word <clears throat> greatly. Your your thought would be it's greatly influencing the results Napier is getting in all of college football, and I would agree entirely. That's my take. Greatly is the right word. I can't tell you how many stories I've heard from the inside that <clears> – <throat> If there wasn't an NIL, this guy's coming to Florida. He didn't come to Florida because his dad, uncle, brother, agent, whatever, got a better offer and basically said, you're going to go here because this is best for you, even if you don't want to go here, right? So that's, again, the highest bidder mentality. You gave a nice example. If these numbers were within 50 grand, go to the school you like. But when there's significantly more, you're going to go where you get paid the most amount of money. I said when we had Scott Strickland on, Alan, uh, in May, that typically when you allow more of a free market, despite how often I've said this is not a true free market, you will get results faster for who is better than someone else. And you might be thinking, well, how is that true? And why am I bringing that up now? Because it seems like Billy Napier is going to get results slower. The reality is the foundations these other schools are building by paying all these players are going to be revealed very, very soon. And if Billy Napier remains a consistent guy, building a good program, sending guys to the NFL, winning football games, harmonious culture, eventually people will start recognizing that and saying, hey, I don't want to play in the broken, let's say, Miami culture. That junk is not working. I want to win. I want to go to the NFL. And right now, it just seems too good to be true. I'll go to Miami, make a ton of money, I'm a high school player. I'm the greatest player ever. I'm going to win. Every high school recruit thinks that, right? If we brought on NFL guys, they're going to tell you how they went, to, they went to college and thought, I'm the greatest thing ever. Then they go to the NFL and they thought, I'm the greatest thing ever. And eventually they recognize, right? That's not the case. It's hard. So that's the expectation. So I think to the three-year test, there has to be a pause button where we say pause, wait for more data. I'm still going to lean heavily on the three years of performance on the field. That's going to be significant. But he hasn't even coached a single football game yet. And thanks to early signing day, he does not get the benefit of coaching an entire season where maybe he does really well and you get that February bump. That's gone too. So essentially, you've really sped the curve up. Now you have pay for play. There's a lot of things that have to be clarified. So I'm, I'm going to stick with the three-year field test. This will be year one on the field, year two, year three. Pause the button on the recruiting. And potentially say, Alan, maybe now the bump class becomes your third class. Interesting. We got to figure it out, right? But also, maybe all of this stuff goes out the window because of what you said. And it's very possible now that recruiting is no longer a function of how good your coach is at recruiting at the top level, but a function of how much your collectives and boosters are willing to spend, how much your administration is willing to break rules that are there that currently are not enforceable, but the rules are still there. There is a lot of stuff out there. And lastly, I want to say this because, again, this gets lost. Right now, under the current rules, it is technically illegal for boosters of any program to give money to any recruits under any way, shape, or form or fashion. Cannot be done. Separate. Clear. The collectives come in, and they're trying to create an organization of boosters, right? They're really boosters that essentially are funding players in some way, shape, or form. The NCAA says if we can retroactively go after you 
Uh, we will, essentially. If you're caught cheating at the end when all this stuff gets settled down and that you were paying players that were not in your school, that you had boosters involved in creating contracts or funding or deals, then you will be punished. Now look, I think Alan and I and all of you listening will agree the NCAA has, NCAA has basically lost any ability to do anything. They're not going to do anything. And that's where a lot of you that are on the more aggressive end would say, Florida just needs to push the envelope because everyone else is doing it. We're going to cover this later on, A, when I have a voice, and B, throughout the season, as to whether or not that's good for college football, whether or not you'd actually want to do that if you were an AD in general, and whether or not having these NIL sort of pseudo-contracts that are very one-way, because again, the schools can't really enforce or lock them into anything, is something you would want to become a part of anyway. And that takes me full circle back to my point, Alan. The foundations that are being built from these schools that are paying all of these players to come to their programs in largely one-way contracts where the players have all the control. They're unproven high school players. Some of these guys are going to lose out to other players. What does this do to your culture? What does it do if your $9 million quarterback is not as good as your guy who you're paying nothing? Do you play him? What happens to the booster who put a million dollars in line to buy that guy? Is he upset? Yes, he is. But wait, he's not a booster. He's a collective guy. Right, There's so many things going on here that it's now creating school wars between the schools, boosters, and collectives. It's just a full-on mania session. We don't know what's going to happen. So we need to press the pause button on recruiting, get a feel for how this stuff shakes out, see how much is on the coach and how much is on the program, the budget. If Lane Kiffin is right, essentially, look, this is going to be like baseball or soccer, world soccer, if you can pay a player $220 million, it doesn't matter how much he loves his hometown, he's not going to play there. He's going to leave. If those things are all true, then greatly is the right word. And Billy Napier, who I think would have been a recruiting machine based upon how many of these guys are in our top four, based upon all of the legit praise on what he's doing, we'd already be in the top five. And the old rule of the bump class would be well in play and he'd be well on his way to passing the recruiting test. So with all that being said, pause the button. Let's wait and see what he does. We still have more targets this year. Let's wait and see what happens in the field. Let's look at new data for a new environment, a new regime, and see now what's going to matter. So conclude, field test still matters. The best coaches in the first three years are going to see tremendous improvement out of their football teams. The recruiting part, which is so essential, which we're going to keep saying is so essential, you have to be a tier one and a half or better school. That part is not understandable right now as to how you get there. It's just not. we got to figure that out to then be able to apply that back to the three-year field test to create what's going to be, I think, the new paradigm for how to evaluate coaches. Yeah, and I think this is why, well, for me personally, I'll, I'll speak to that. I don't love following recruiting constantly because I don't want to be panicking in June about, like, you know, December signing class. And maybe maybe you're right to panic, but it just doesn't seem like a fun emotional over state to be in. And yeah, I don't. We'll see. I don't know if these guys can decommit. It'll be interesting if they've signed away their nil rights to these collectives. Can they renege on that? Are they able to get out of those contracts? Are you able to flip people down the line? Like if you if you're committing to you know Tennessee and they go four and whatever. Are you? Do you still want to sign with him? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Um, 
So we'll have to see about that. I don't even know if the, what is the landscape currently and how to judge it. I mean, you said it well. It's really cloudy, and how you evaluate people seems really difficult. Um, and, and I think we've talked about this before. I don't want to be old man yells at cloud with this, but the overall state of recruiting, it does there's like a sleaziness to it. It's always been sleazy. So I don't want to be naive about that, but right now it just feels like there's this still this market that's still underground in a way where it's not like a world soccer league where maybe you don't like it, but you understand what's happening right now. It's hard to even understand what's happening. I don't know what rules people are playing with. I don't know what's allowable. What's not what's good. What's morally not it feels so murky that anytime you open that box, it feels like, eh. you know, I'm actually looking forward to the season a little bit, but this recruiting cycle has turned me off a good bit. Yeah. And that's, and that's well said. You're playing your favorite board game or video game or sport. <clears throat> and essentially the rules are changing every hour. So how do you create a strategy? What do you do? How do you play the game? You're playing monopoly and all of a sudden the guy next to you shows up and has his own monopoly money. You're like, wait a minute, this game works. There's a fixed amount of money here on the board. It's like not anymore. There isn't. I got three dice. Yeah. Yeah. I have more dice and I have more players. And I also have 10 times more money than you do. You're like, yeah, but the game requires us to have the same amount of money. No, no, not anymore. You're like, great. Well now I can't buy any properties. I'm just going to lose. So are you no longer a skillful player? No, you're not. You're under-resourced. So, you know, a lot needs to be seen here, but I think in general, I am going to say this about the recruiting overall. I'm really pleased with how many guys we've been in on and the buzz for the program and where we are. True. That is hope for the future, but I'm going to die on the hill I die on. It doesn't really matter what happens. If if we do not get to that tier one or tier one and a half recruiting class, we're just not going to win. So at some point, you have to get there. Worrying about it right now as a fan or worrying about it as a fan in December doesn't make any sense. Because Alan, nor I, nor you, nor anyone else has any control over this unless you work for the program or you're going to be a big fat cat booster paying for someone to come here, right? I can't control it, but we're going to analyze it as we're doing now. We're going to tell you what we think. So right now, I think trending in the right direction would have been amazing in a different paradigm. Remains to be seen for right now. But Alan keeps saying it best, though. If this game that we're playing is going to keep changing like this, then it's hard to figure out how to do it and where to exist. And of course, of course, to the cheater go the spoils. The mafia around the world do the best when the law and the country they are in is unclear and ambiguous. They do the best. And that's the world we live in now. We have unbelievably ambiguous and unclear laws, and the cheater is going to prosper. And you could argue they're not cheating, because they're just doing what's not stated, which is fine. But that's what's going to happen. The more aggressive person is going to do better. And that now requires, as you said, Alan, a tremendous amount of sleaziness, in my opinion. More so than normal with grown men and women funding high schoolers' habits. The whole thing is just not great. I wish I never saw it because it makes me want to not want to watch college football at times, thinking it's every player on every team like this. They're a bunch of mercenaries who don't care at all about the school they play for. And all they want to do is ride around a Lambo and, you know, eat good food. I mean, I don't know. It just, it's very tough. And it's too reductive to say everyone's like that. I know that's not true. 
But when you micro-focus on some of these guys, man, it's a tough spot. So, Well, well I too want to ride in a Lambo and eat good food. So, Yeah. No, it's nice. I mean, I understand it. It's very materialistic too, though, which is, that's a big irony for later. Yeah, I've for gotten sure. several texts from some of the older, not that old, let's just call them previous decade before everyone's getting paid players, as young as early 30s to as old as 50s, prominent guys for the program that would all say something similar. This is going to be so interesting because football was and still is the ultimate team game. So much of football is about being selfless, doing its best for your teammate, doing its best for the team, playing your role. And in the NFL, you know that Allen is the premier player getting paid XYZ dollars. And I know that my role is this. I know my role. It's defined. And if I beat Allen out, it's going to be hard for me to beat him out because they want to play the big money guy, but they will because they want to win. And the team, even though it's still contract, right? Let's call them all contract guys. They're all for hire guys. In order to win, they know they have to mold each other into this team scenario. But in college sports where these guys are not professional athletes yet, you're losing what some people would say is one of the best things about football is this culture building selflessness that you want your citizens to have. And you're turning it into a me first celebration of myself, me versus everyone else mentality which is not going to win on the football field, first of all. And second of all, it's not going to win in life. It's a losing attitude in life is to be me versus everyone and do what's best for me. And before I go on some ethical rant for 10 minutes with no voice, the phrase I really can't stand the most is the, I've got to do what's best for me or I've got to feed my family. Because in reality, it should be, if you're on a team, if you have, if you have organization members, you have other people, your decisions matter to all of them. You should be making the best decision for all of those people, including yourself. If you just silo yourself, you're going to make a lot of really bad decisions, especially if those decisions are entirely surrounded upon money. You're going to be lonely and rich. Not so great. Listen to Chris Paul's podcast a year ago with JJ Reddick talking about how miserable most NBA players, including himself, are because they're super rich and they're super lonely. A lot of times because they've selected the wrong culture. All right. End ethical rant. Here we go. I love it. So, yeah. Interesting state state of, I guess, the recruiting landscape currently. It's going to be fascinating to see how it and the rest of college football continues to move forward. We're going to like some of it. We're not going to like other parts of it. And who who knows how it's all going to shake out. We'll get to some of those things here in a minute. But I wanted to ask you about how we're feeling about, like, the difficulty of Florida's schedule from this distance. You know, it's today is July 25th. So we're just past media days, not quite to fall camp. So let me just give, if you're not looking at the schedule, quick rundown. All these first set of games are at home except for the Tennessee game. So here we go. Utah, Kentucky, USF, Tennessee, Eastern Washington, Missouri, and LSU. That's really strange. I've never seen a season or a schedule where Florida has that many home games to start a season. Followed by the off week, Georgia, of course, in Jacksonville. At AM, South Carolina at home, at Vanderbilt, at Florida State. So when you look at that as a whole, what's your first impression about how difficult that schedule is? Uh, difficult. It's difficult, and it wouldn't be as difficult depending on the quality of Florida's team. But this particular year, it's difficult. Um, first, first of all, if you just want to, we're going to go through that. We'll go through it in depth. We're not now. So I'm going to 
yeah. not do that. We'll do the schedule walkthrough in August. For just sure. in general, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say this at a very quick and rapid level. Utah coin flip, Kentucky coin flip, USF win, Tennessee coin flip in their favor if they're training the way they are. Hard place to play. Eastern Washington automatic win, Missouri. You know, coin flip in our favor, LSU coin flip. That's the start of your season. So we can find ways that you can win these games. You can find ways you can lose these games. But that's a lot of coin flips, Alan. Yeah, that's, that's exactly not, how I feel about it. That's not the 90s Spurrier teams when it was win-win Tennessee, question mark, win-win-win someone else. It's not the way that it is. So that's tough. Then you go off and then you go Georgia. Okay, that's a heavy favorite Georgia. Then you go at A&M, heavy favorite A&M. Then you go South Carolina. Coin flip favor of Florida, Vanderbilt. Win Florida, Florida State should be a win for Florida. Still at Florida who State. Who knows where it, what, still who knows where they are. But that to me, given the state of this Florida team right now, that's a lot of coin flips. That's a schedule that can go anywhere, and that's why Florida by the general media is picked to be fourth, like we said. So yeah, that's kind of the quick look at it. I think it's a difficult schedule for this Florida team, despite the fact they get to open up with almost all home games. Yeah, it's really challenging. You could find a other than Georgia, you could probably find a narrative that Florida could win every game. For sure. But I could also sit here and tell you, other than maybe Eastern Washington and Vanderbilt, how Florida could lose every single game on their schedule. And that's really challenging when your margin of error is that low. Now we could get into it and see Florida is actually really good or Florida's worse than we thought. And that starts to change the dynamics of this. So obviously, we get to the middle of the season. We do a re-up on that schedule walkthrough. Things look way different, right? Um, at this point, it seems not that every team is mon- monumental, but you said, well, for this Florida team, it's going to be extremely difficult to navigate unscathed because there's so many potential losses on the schedule. I, there's a big, huge range here, and we've talked about this before. Does Florida end up with six wins or ten wins? You know, Those are both in play to varying percentages, but all those are fairly high outcome levels. And it would make me nervous on betting any kind of over under, unless I got a really good low number there. And, you know, if you're seeing Florida at six, you know, I'd probably take the over on that, but it wouldn't be like slam dunk. There's a lot of potential losses on the schedule. Yeah, a lot. This is, this is, um, this is tough. And again, if you're just sort of first experience kind of looking at the schedule and you're hearing that, uh, you know, it's 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 tough. But on, on in your mindset, Kentucky to most Gator fans still feels easy. It's not, especially with this year's team. Missouri, I still want to overlook Missouri all the time. The reality is, you know. I would not. The reality is, who knows? And, and most importantly, we've said this before, we're going to say it again. If Anthony Richardson goes down with an injury... This team is two to three losses more. I mean, just a reality. That's how important he's going to be to this campaign. And you cannot, this is not Madden where you can turn off injuries. You can't. They're a very real part of what happens in college football. So just a lot of hurdles there, I think, to go through. Of course, we're going to walk through each game in detail like we do. We'll give you the full season preview where we really get into it. But for now, I'm glad, Alan, you brought this into this program. A sort of July look at... What does this upcoming campaign look like for Florida? So my next question for you is about your excitement level. I'll go ahead and talk first here. Kind of the byproduct of this is I think 
I'm pretty excited to watch us navigate the schedule. This isn't, like you said, a Spurrier team where like we're going to probably beat every one of these teams except for two by 30 points. And so it'll be fun, but it won't be exciting. I think every game other than Eastern Washington is going to be interesting. Even USF, who I don't think will be any good, it's still a little bit of like, hey, how are we going to look? What's it going to be like? Um, yeah, that there's a lot of intrigue. Even your traditional doormats like South Carolina and Kentucky are they're feeling themselves. South Carolina is feeling it right now. They might not be November 12th, but right now they are. And so I would say my excitement for this level with all the Richards and stuff to start out against Utah and I could be quickly dashed, but I think I have a fairly high anticipation level for this season that there's the ceiling is really high, both of Richardson and this team. And I think we, you know, we haven't been there in a while. We thought we were, you know, we've, been on the downside of that, but I don't think we've been on the upside of that a lot. No, we haven't. And this is sort of like season one of a new TV show where you have one of of your up-and-coming producers and directors. You've seen a show before. You liked it. You've got one of your favorite actors that's going to be in this show, and you've got a genre you like, and you think, man, I can't wait to see this show. In the first episode, you're just so excited to see what story they're going to tell you. And then by episode four, you're either like wrapped up in the show and you love it or you're not watching it anymore. And that's what I think Florida's year is going to be like with more variation in between. But those are some of the most exciting times in anything because you just have no idea what to expect. And therefore, each episode, so to speak, each game means a lot more than if it's season two and you love season one and everyone's back and you kind of know where the story is going. You really want to watch it and you're excited, but it's more predictable. This is totally unknown. And hopefully it goes the direction where each game we learn something, uh, we get better. Um, it's it's fun, it's exciting, and it's not you know a pull your hair out, Grantham coordinating defense level season where we never want to watch it again. Uh, but yes, to your point, very, very exciting I'll say one side piece that's tangential. I find myself with all of the changes in college football being less excited about college football in general. I love football and the chess match, so when I get into the games, I'm going to love that part. But again, maybe it's naive for me to keep saying this, but it's sad for me to think that there is going to be a significant share of players that are putting on the jerseys for the school they go to, and they don't care at all about the school. The magic, Alan, when you and I were in school is the football players, the basketball players, to a large, large degree, also fell in love with being Florida Gators. They loved it. They loved their school. Not everyone, generalization. And now, you know, talk to a lot of guys that are, again, not old, mid-20s, late-20s Gator players, and they'll tell you they're still kind of tied into the guys that are in high school, their brothers are in high school. That's not going to be the way it is anymore. And they're kind of unanimous in saying that. And that is the part that just makes me sad. So I think some guys are going to come into the program. They're going to adopt Florida as their school. And they're going to they're going to be all in. They're going to love it. And Pierce was that kind of guy for Florida. He loved being a Gator. He always talked about it. He loved it. Others will be that way. But I am a little sad just feeling like that was the magic of college football. And could you have had that and had an NIL can you have that and have an NIL? Sure, I think that you can. I think there's ways to get there where you can bring that back. But right now, it feels like it's at its worst for what used to be part of its best, which was the passion 
and however college football can recreate the passion the players had for the institution, whether they get paid millions of dollars or not, I don't care. I just want to come into a season knowing the passion for the school, the logo, everything that comes with the university is somehow back. We got to find a way to get that back because it feels like that's not the direction that it's going. And that part is, for me, bringing down my excitement to a certain level. So college football is changing a lot in general right now. So I think the college football, even if five years ago, is gone forever. Yes, for sure. No doubt. So NIL, but also conference realignment is pushing us towards an uncertain future. I'll say that. I mean, there's lots of theories about, you know, this is going to consolidate in just two conferences. Is it going to be three? Is there going to be a breakaway Super League? Um. You know, I, I tend to vacillate between being like kind of gloom and doom about like, I don't know if I like the direction we're heading or there's some really cool stuff about what is changing. And now Florida is in the in group, right? So I'm not a fan of Iowa State who could potentially be like left out in the cold. Uh, you know, if you're Oregon State or Baylor or whatever, you could just be like, now all of a sudden I find myself slotted into this new tier that's below the higher tier. Unfortunately, and you know, maybe you have just as much chance to like beat some big boys as you used to, but it just becomes very clear demarcated for you where you're at. Um, and hopefully whatever playoff we get would include some opportunity for some of the maybe Cinderella's to get in there and the expanded playoff. Cause I still think even if you're not in the top league, if you could get a chance to play through the top league, that still creates that hope that, Hey, if everything breaks right, we could still win it, right? And I think it would actually restore some of the fun right now with college football. We don't like Cinderella's. We don't want Cincinnati breaking in, right? But as an expanded playoff, hey, if you get in and you win your way all the way through, that's really cool. All of a sudden, people are drawn to that. You're not taking somebody's spot if it's the 12th team. You know, you are, but it's less crucial. And so this has all been, I think, brought to the forefront again with USC and UCLA leaving the Pac-12 for the Big Ten. I'm sure a lot of you have consumed so much discussion on this already, read a ton of, we're not going to spend a ton of time, but you know that's the end of the alliance, right? <laughs> that the Big Ten stabs their partner, the Pac-12, in the back and takes their most high-profile properties outside of Oregon. I, again, I think this is a step towards further consolidation and further change. This is not going to be where we end up. But it's exciting on one level, but once I get away from the initial excitement of it, it's like, ah, I'm not certain that this is a better direction. <clears throat> so this is what's funny. As much as I don't like the NIL and some of that stuff, when it comes to how it's being handled now, I'm going to keep saying that. <clears throat> I really do like the idea of these consolidated Super Leagues. And why do I like that? Because I like competition. I think not having Vanderbilt in the SEC is better. I also think what you said is the key. If you have either an expanded playoff where you allow other schools in, it's always and always should be about the end of the season. That's what matters the most. That's how Ole Miss won a baseball national championship. True. Right? They were the last team in, and they won, and it was awesome. And there were a lot of great games. And the SEC is great at baseball. So they should have been in. That's why relegation in European soccer leagues works so well. The Iowa States, 
the Oregon States get a chance to win their way into the top league. And if you start sucking, you lose your way out of the top league. The idea of those things creates competition. It creates a Cinderella story. And the expanded playoff in basketball does that. Every year you have separating blue buds, bigger, bigger budgets, but you still have these small school stories that come in and it's magic. And so football is different than basketball, but I think you're addressing that well. So then what happens? You get a league where each week you're getting these incredible football games against these marquee football teams. You're eliminating a lot of the dud games, and then you're creating even better competition for the smaller schools, in my opinion. You are going to lose you know, mid-tier school that rises up and plays well against big school, but instead they get a schedule of teams that are much closer to them. And now perhaps that builds more fans of those schools because they can still go to a playoff. The carrot is still there for them. If you shut them off to the playoff, you're shutting them off to the football world. You might as well put them in a different division. But to me, if I'm a USF fan and USF's able to have a good season against teams of its own caliber and they get to go into the playoff, that is awesome. I'm probably more in tuned than each year knowing I have no chance of winning anything. I'm going to get walled by the big boys. I think that's compelling. I think it's compelling. We're not there yet, but I like that idea. I think it's a good idea. Pat Forty ultimately gets the ultimate hat tip because 23 years ago, Alan, he started writing a column that said eventually college football is going to end up in one or two super leagues. It is an inevitability. And he was one of the first guys to say that. He said it almost every year, and we're quickly approaching that reality. Uh, And there are benefits. So to your point, there are benefits to what's happening. I just wish we could somehow pair that with that passion that exists for college football, the rivalries that make it so special. Can we bring that back? I certainly hope so. We're in the middle of a transition. I hope we can get to that point. So Kevin Clark, who writes for Ringer, said something about this, like college football is fueled by fury, like against your neighbor. So that if they cancel, if college football went away, like Alabama fans and Tennessee fans would like still meet on the third Saturday in October and like throw rocks at one another or something like that. So yeah, you, you don't want to destroy every significant rivalry and, and history is a good thing when it comes with sports. So I think that's where I, I'm conservative by nature when it comes to those types of things. I don't want to lose what we have to gain this uncertain thing. Now, it may be better. And I'm open to that if you can show me that it's better. And so college football is, you know, it's it's healthier if every part of the country is engaged. So we need to remember and think about that, right? This is why the Packers can exist with the New York Giants, right? Because they under, the Giants understands why the NFL is so healthy is that if every team is healthy, it's better for everybody. And so we're going to share some of our revenue, right? And we're getting to a different kind of model here. But just understanding that it's not just if I get mine, it doesn't matter, right? There's not a, it can't be a zero-sum game because you're going to be left at the end with just yourself and you have no one to play. So, yes. I. And again, I'm very clear. I think this is just a step towards something else, like five-ish years down the road. So I don't want to like get too high or too low on this particular moment. Okay. Um, speaking of a just thought experiment here with college football, some of you know who Stuart Mandel is. We actually interviewed him on the podcast many, many, many years ago. He's like the head of the athletics college football coverage, longtime national writer. So he's been doing this little experiment 
really over the last 15 years. I think he re-ups it every five years. And it's his traditionally his kings, barons, knights, and peasants of college football. So all of the power teams slots them into where are they at. So try not to be too recent, but what is their national perception? And he just came out with the updated list this summer. He added a new tier to it, uh, Emperor, which he slotted Alabama into that. I mean, I can't argue with that. Um, but here are the Kings. Clemson, Georgia, LSU, Oklahoma, Notre Dame, USC, Michigan, Ohio State, Texas. And then some teams that used to be in the Kings, I believe Florida is a notable omission there, if you, heard me, if you didn't hear me say that. Uh, FSU, uh, maybe Penn State dropped down a level. So obviously this creates, this is great for him because it creates a ton of discussion. Now, if you're just kind of lumping in Alabama with the rest of the Kings there, anybody you would want to take in or out of that list? <clears throat> Are you going to read all the, uh, the Barons? Uh, the Barons. Okay. Yes, Auburn, Florida, FSU, Iowa, Miami, Michigan State, Nebraska, Oregon, Penn State, Texas A&M, Wisconsin, and Tennessee. And I'll go ahead while you recover here and you consume some more honey. Yeah, for the most part, I think it's pretty spot on. And this feels like the most Homer thing to say possible. But it feels like Florida should be up there in that top level. And again, we've had some ups and downs, but a lot more national championships than some of the teams on this list. right? And that's not the sole qualifier by any means. It's about prestige. It's about reputation. But if you're going to put Texas on this list, it feels like Florida has to be on this list too. Um, again, that Florida is a new blood. I understand that, but it was very severely ensconced, not severely, it was very obviously ensconced in the Kings list five years ago. And I don't think that there's been that much downfall, a lot of turbulence, a lot of up and downs. Um, if you're going to look at consistency, the only teams that really apply are like Ohio state and Oklahoma. They're the only two programs that are like never bad in the history of college football. So that would be my one quibble. I mean, I, and that sounds really like this is a Florida podcast. I'm like, I'm complaining that Florida's not a king anymore. But that really feels like Florida's closer to those other school, schools than they are to like Michigan State, Nebraska. <clears throat> yeah, I'm presuming that he didn't drop Michigan out solely because they had like one, you know, lucky year last year. Well, they're also, you know, the winningest program. <laughs> they like to claim that they've been relevant for a hundred years. Florida until 1990 was largely irrelevant. Well, right, right, right. But I mean, like Michigan clearly was trending down and has been like looking at the Florida, Michigan arc. They're not trending up. Neither program has been like consistently going anywhere. Texas trending very similar to Florida. They maintain a bigger national profile. Notre Dame, despite making a lot of like playoff appearances getting smoked. So it's interesting because I agree. So they're leaning heavily on, that's what we're agreeing with here, like yeah. history. LSU, they're a new blood. Obviously, they've won recently. Clemson were nothing. Now they've been winning Georgia there. So I also think it's interesting to me, Alan, that Florida to me is just the newer version of a Michigan and a Texas, to your point. Dropping them out seems surprising if you're going to keep them in. And I think he would argue what you said. That's why I kind of set it up. He would say, well, their history's longer. I'm going to keep them there. It's like, okay, well, what merits dropping them out then? Nothing. They stay there forever. Like you dropped Florida and Florida State out because of their recency. 
Penn State, same thing, great history. So like, what does it take to drop these schools out? But really fun conversational list, I think, regardless. And I think it is true that Florida's brand nationally has fallen. That is for sure. If you went to school in the 90s, you watched it ascend. If you went to school in the 2000s, you watched it peak. And if you went to school starting in the 2010s, you've watched it fall. And it is not the same brand that it was on the football field. And a lot of other schools have realized that. They've commented on that. Florida is not the football powerhouse it was for basically 20 straight years. But again, neither of the schools are mentioning. So yeah, I like it. I think it's a nice categorization, though, of kind of where you are, uh, roughly. And you could certainly flex some schools up and some schools down. Yeah, it's funny with Miami, too. They're really interesting. I mean, they've won so many national titles fairly recently. They're not, these aren't in the 40s or 50s. These right. are in the 80s and 90s and 2000. That they've fallen in such disrepair that it's not even really like a conversation that they belong in that second category. FSU, which was so dominant for so long. They're, I mean, very similar to Florida in terms of like a timeline overall. And you see some younger people, younger teams like, you know, Oregon, A&M up there. And then, you know, it's interesting, Nebraska still holding on to that Baron status. They're like trending down, 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 down. They're they're still hanging on to the Baron rather than ascending to the Baron. And, yeah, when I read that, I was like, you know, that just feels off to me. Like the logic doesn't quite hold. And, again, you have to pick and choose, and it's just personal opinion on this. So I don't want to get all up in arms about a writer's opinion, but this has been something I've tracked over the last like 15 years. And so a little disheartening to see that Florida could even be in the discussion to be moved down to Barron's. It is, it is. And obviously we could pop right back up there, but also interesting. Allen is in the Kings and emperor category. Every school is in its own state. And with Florida hmm. in the Barron's category, you had two Kings, Florida and Florida state, same state Kings. Then Miami, which all three of those would have been kings together in the heyday of Florida football, right? Late 90s, early 2000s. And now you have three schools in the Barons list that are all from the state of Florida. But that kind of makes sense. To me, the story of football in the state of Florida goes to recruiting and it goes to one person, in my opinion, who is currently the emperor at Alabama in Nick Saban. When he was at Michigan State, as far as I can recall, we've chronicled this. He was the first out-of-state coach to truly come into the state of Florida and take at least mid to up-tier players at a high level of consistency to where that roster was like 65-70% Florida players. And the floodgates on Florida now are wide open. Florida kids, generally speaking, are the least sticky to their state. Which makes sense because Florida is sort of a mini America. A lot yeah. of transplants, transplants, a lot of people from all over the place. They don't have a huge identity of the state. So, you know, Oklahoma, Texas, Texas pride, high, right? Alabama, obviously, so on and so forth. So I think it's really interesting to make that point. And it leads me to this last point I wanted to say for the end of the podcast as a bonus for those of you that are here at the end through my voice. The thing I like the most about what Billy Napier is doing in recruiting is he's trying to get guys that live in close proximity to the university, basically within 100-ish miles. And I love that because my fear for the mercenary stuff is absolved with what you said. 
football is sort of a college football is like a like a sign of fury. It's neighbor fury. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? If you grew up within a hundred miles and you're playing on a team with all these other kids who did too, you better believe that at some point it becomes your area of the country versus everyone else. And I think that is a brilliant decision by Napier. Build the home turf mentality because you will play harder and you will play better. And I think it's interesting to note there, there's a lot of stuff that's been going on in the state of Florida when it comes to that kind of thing. A lot of things going here. But yes, ultimately it is true. Florida, Florida State, Miami, not where they were 15, 20 years ago. It seems like stewards move them accordingly. We'll see what happens in the future. Uh, but it's you know it's hard to be in the state of Florida and maintain your own kids. It's not easy. So this will be interesting five years from now when he updates this again. Um, that if Billy Napier is successful, I think you'll see Florida back in the Kings, right? For sure. And that would be the sign of, obviously, Florida wins another national title. There, It wouldn't even be a consideration. But I think he could get there even with some SEC titles and a re- revamp of the brand or whatever. So I love that. Actually, I hadn't really thought about that strategy. I mean, obviously, it's good to focus on home because you're more likely to get those kids. But once you do get them, maybe a little more stickiness, a little more loyalty. Maybe you're looking at those kids from Miami and be like, hey, I want to show that we're better than those kids from Miami. I like that. That's good. That's very cool. Uh, okay. A lot of talk about big picture college football. Anything that we missed, you think? I don't think so. Thanks again for suffering through my, uh, my voice. I'm basically shouting and I can barely make sentences, but hopefully you can make this out. And uh, by the next time we're on the air, which Alan's going to tell you here in a second, everything will be hunky-dory with my voice. Yes. So if you're looking for the next pod, We'll get you ready for the season here in late August. So about a week before the kickoff against Utah, we'll get a big season preview, some Utah prep, get you all ready to go to start the season. So, um, yeah, be patient when it's time. The app will drop, and hopefully we'll deliver you the kind of goodness that we always try to do. And, yeah, as James said at the top, very thankful for you guys. Um, Hopefully you enjoyed this episode. If there's stuff that you want us to preview in – the season preview episode that we maybe haven't done in the past, let us know and we'll try to include that. All right. Well, thanks again for listening and we'll see you guys really soon. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.